Justin Jennings is our first guest on the program today. He is a senior curator of Latin American archaeology at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, as well as associate professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto. He's the author of and editor of many books, including Globalization and the Ancient World, and author of an article at theconversation.com that caught our attention a few days ago entitled Social Bubbles Always Burst from COVID-19 to the Past 10,000 years. Justin Jennings, good morning and welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Good morning to you as well. It's great to have you with us, Dr. Jennings. It's uh, th- this article. <laughs> the, I, I enjoyed the article very much. I quoted paragraph three a few moments ago, uh, talking about how you shouldn't have been surprised. Social bubbles never last long. This, of course, is when the bubbles burst after the second virus surge. We have tried and failed for more than 10,000 years. We're not very good at bubbles, Justin. Yeah, no, and I think that should be should have been pretty obvious to everybody, right? I think that's uh, one of the big points. What to make, uh, of course, is yeah, you know, you 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 get to these moments, you want to bubble, you want to say, okay, I'm going to cut off the outside world, and then of course by day two, at least for me, you know, the sink broke, I had to get a plumber, sure. in. you got to go get groceries, everything breaks down. So I think that that, that to me is you had this fantasy, we had this collective fantasy, it was all going to work. You know, we locked down for two weeks, for four weeks, whatever it was, and then we'd get it done and. And, and yeah, you know, it, it didn't work now. It didn't work before, you know, it never worked. So, uh, that was, that was one thing to, to sort of bring up, of course, to everyone is to reiterate that point. One of the things that, uh, that uh, I did, I've learned about you, Dr. Jennings, subsequent to finding out you're going to join us on the program. And we are delighted to have you is that you, you've done a lot of work in your professional career. Uh, and, and one of the books that caught my attention was, was called finding fairness and I wonder how you would apply the fairness ethic to the current round of imposed bubbling. Yeah, no, I mean that's 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 a, that's a tough one in, in a sense that uh, you know. So for example, just let's just take one uh, one example of essential workers, right? Where um, lots of debates are is you know who can do what and and what the restrictions should be and why, why my work is not essential and your work is essential, yeah. especially when you're looking at things like, at least here in Ontario, uh, we had a big debate early on about the LCBOs, right, is that our alcohol stores were, were open. Those were essential businesses. And why is my flower shop not essential? So, um, yeah, so a lot of the debates that occur now and, again, in the past are all about fairness. Mm-hmm. About, um, you know, what's the right thing to do? Who gets to decide it? And oftentimes when you have these, these great crises like, the, like with COVID, this is when all this comes to bear, right? You can kind of ignore things for a long time and just assume you're, you know, that, that you're getting along with everybody. And then when something like this hits, governments make decisions and routinely people say, hey, that's not right. I'm not being treated correctly. Why are, why are those people treated in a way that, uh, at least to me, seems like they're, they're you know, better than me? And and all these emotions just get ratcheted up uh, in these in these moments of crisis. It certainly is an emotional time, Justin. There's absolutely no question about it. And the longer this goes on, the more twisted into knots many of us are getting. Let's talk about your area of expertise, anthropology. Let's talk about the history of humanity and social bubbles. You've spent a lot of your career on this, and and let's, so let's talk about why invariably. Over a long period of time, they don't work. 
Yeah. So one of the things that um, in, in this Finding Fairness book that uh, that you mentioned earlier, you know, I looked at some of the great transitions, the great sort of moments of, of crisis. So things like, for example, um, early agriculture, the first villages, cities, empires, the rise of capitalism. And, and what I what I want to suggest here, which I think is something that maybe we don't think about as much, is that when you have these big moments of change, what people try to do is they bubble. Uh you know, and, and you think about it in your own personal life, oftentimes it's like there's a big moment. What do you do? Do you rise to the occasion or do you sort of just turtle? Mm-hmm. And what and what I've suggested is, hey, that most of the time we don't rise to the occasion, at least at first, we try to turtle. And this the turtling usually is bubbling. We try to sort of do what we were doing before. We try to do it with the smallest group of people that we trust the most. And we kind of hope that the problem goes away. Um and so in that conversation article, I talk about one example, which is of the ancestral Huron, uh, which is here in the Toronto region where I'm, uh, where I live, of people looking at a time when villages were getting bigger and bigger. And what they try to do is just make uh, longhouses, their, their longhouses and social bubbles and mm-hmm. try to keep out everyone else. So it, like ignore oh, the village is getting, you know, now instead of 50 people in the village, there's 300 people, but we're going to ignore those, those other 250. We're going to try to keep them apart. And, and uh, you know, just like today, the social bubbles didn't work. They tried his best, but then they have, you know, they have a fight and someone would leave. They're, they'd show up at a different village and, or someone would have a guest and everything began to break down. All those social ties, economic ties, political mm-hmm. ties started breaking things down. So this is what you see, I think, time and time again, and, and which is important to me as an anthropologist, as an archaeologist, looking long-term and saying, hey, look, um, our first reaction is understandable, but not usually the best reaction, which is, well, let's just hope it, hope it goes away. Let's just try to keep within smaller bubbles. And, you know, this may work perhaps a bit with COVID, but what happens with the next pandemic? Do we really want to do this again? Right. Are there other strategies? And I think what we have to look for more is innovation. And this is what happens. For example, the first cities, they finally change how they organize life instead of just uh, trying to avoid all the other 10,000 people. They say, okay, how do we actually live together as a group in this uh, new urban landscape? So in, in terms of the human history, again, as we look to uh, the uh, experience of our predecessors, and you go back many, many millennia uh, as that, at that, uh, that whole uh, uh, accumulation of knowledge and experience and applying it in today's context the first your 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 impression after all of the work is the first human reaction in a crisis is to turn inwards and and gather with those you trust the most and hope everything else goes away right yeah so i mean the image that, that comes to mind is you know the the uh, you know the, the nuclear blast image, you know, the kids in the 1950s, they would go huddle under their desks. And, I remember and, that. You know, hope that everything would, you know, would be okay. Duck and cover. Uh, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have that and you say, okay, yeah, that's part of it. That's important. But what else is going on? And I think that for, yeah, so with COVID, when COVID, I think that was a duck and cover. We were told to do that by the government. Right. You know, duck and cover. In Ontario, they said, hey, form a bubble. You know, we'll, this will be over soon. And, uh, you know, I said, I don't have an issue with that. You know, certainly I've done that in my life. But then you have to sort of get up, you know, from the floor and think about new solutions to problems. And I think we're at that stage, uh, hopefully now, that, you know, we know that the bubbles aren't working. It's not a long-term solution to any problem that we've had in the past. 
and how do you move forward? Well, that's, is, that's the, is the question. And there is, that yeah. is the $64,000 question, isn't right. it, Justin? Because if you can't manage, uh, and you're locked down in Ontario a little bit more than we are here in British Columbia, but Dr. Henry just extended the current uh, set of orders uh, indefinitely, actually, although we're hoping for probably a month from now to have a review. So the lockdown isn't quite as thorough as Ontario, although that appears to be loosening uh, in the next week or so. Uh, but still, it's that still it's the restrictive environment in which we all live these days how do we manage our way out of managing uh, uh the pandemic and the reality of in of uh, a particularly vulnerable elements in our population justin and at the same time uh, avoid this sort of bubble imperative is it possible yeah, that is a sixty-four thousand, uh, you know, dollar question. You know, oftentimes interesting because the sort of the the one of the big um, vectors in terms of human history is about becoming more complex, having larger groups. You know, and just a few years ago, as you recall, we we went to a a, a world which is now more urban than than people living in places like villages. Sure. So. Uh, so suddenly we're trying to put the brakes on on a pattern that has gone on for the last 20,000 years and say, well, let's get smaller. Let's let's start breaking apart some of these global and and interregional uh, linkages. So, you know, I, I don't I don't have a great answer. I don't think anyone does for mm-hmm. what, what to move forward. But but I would say what I'm interested in, what I've been sort of exploring a little bit in, in my own head is this sort of idea of segmentation is how do you are there ways in which you can do things in parallel? in larger groups where people can enjoy a lot, you know, so, so I think that the, the question is really, okay, in terms of social costs, how, is there a way that we can segment society in which you don't have a lot of the, the movement back and forth um, of the virus across broader scales, but that you can get into, you know, help those vulnerable populations, have people's social, um, you know, their, their mental health, uh, you know, a priority mm-hmm. and, and, and so, in, in essence, I'm maybe saying, well, you know, make a bigger and bigger bubble until people feel that they don't, you know, it's almost like a Truman Show answer, right? Until they don't feel like they're in a bubble at all, but yet have that kind of ceiling that, that, that allows for less, less of the virus to travel. Interesting. I don't know how that would be done. Of course, it's hard to do that once when you have levels, um, you know, that we have here in Ontario uh, or in British Columbia for that matter. Mm. But, but certainly, I think. It's to me, it's not so much about planning for for COVID-19, but it's for planning for something like, you know, COVID-2025 or whatever it might be, you know, in the future. How do we deal with these situations and make them tenable in the long term? There's so much a human cost right now. We are in conversation with Dr. Justin Jennings from the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, where he is senior curator of Latin American archaeology. Dr. Jennings is also an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto and the author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled Social Bubbles Always Burst from COVID-19 to the Past 10,000 Years. And Justin, it's the last paragraph that I want to quote as we begin the second half of our conversation amid a second COVID-19 purge it is tempting to try to shut out the world it won't work 
10,000 years of human history shows us that now is the time to experiment with new ways of pandemic living. And that's where I'd like to pick up because you mentioned the key to the second half of our conversation just a few moments ago, and that's mental health. Uh, There are are more and more of us uh, being drawn to paying more and more attention to the mental well-being of 38 million Canadians. And I would think uh, overall, our mental health well-being level is down. Would you agree? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I think that all of us could, you know, give a, a stiff upper lip for the first couple of months. But now we're, uh, well, I'm certainly flagging. I think a lot of people I talk to, yeah, we're, 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 uh, we're down. Now, for sure. does the bubble reinforce that or does it in fact keep us from going nuts? Well, you know, I think it depends a lot on your bubble, you know, who you have in your bubble and, uh, and um, where your loved ones are and how, how you're worried. I mean, everyone's, I think, situation's a bit different. Uh, you know, so for myself, uh, I have, uh, my parents are in Pennsylvania by themselves. So, you know, you're thinking about not only your bubble, but then you're trying to, to get through other people's bubbles as virtually as possible. Of course, so yeah. That's often the strain as well, um, where in the past you weren't able to actually go ahead and, and visit and do something. Now it's almost there, um, which I think can often make it, in some ways, even worse, right, to be able to be so close but yet so far. Indeed. In so let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the new ways of pandemic living that now is the time for us to take a look at. What sort of, rem- again, based on your extensive a career, a lifetime career of, of looking at human behavior and the evolution of learning and social interaction, what sort of, of ways would you recommend the, the leaders uh, of Canada and other countries, what, what's, what direction should they be looking in to successfully accomplish accomplish the pandemic uh, realities and yet with the mental well-being of their population also improving at the same time yeah you know as we said in the first half you know that's the that's the big question um you know my mind drifts to some some examples of of early urbanism the ways in which people dealt with i said a very different problem but how do we live together for the first time in groups of not say 200 but in 20,000 or 40,000. Okay. And one of, the, one of the ways in which they dealt with it, so if we take, for example, if we go to, to Pakistan and, the, and the Indus Valley civilization, places like Harappa, how they dealt with it was said, okay, instead of having one big city, we're actually going to have, um, in this case, I think it was about seven walled compounds, uh, sort of walled cities within cities. And so that those became these, um, these building blocks to make the broader sort of life of Harappa. And those last and were successful for a long time. So how does that relate to COVID uh, and sort of post-COVID? Well, I think that that we can think maybe about segmentation and about being in smaller groups that then rising under certain situations uh, get into, you know, go into, into larger um, governance structures and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm not, like I said, I'm not quite sure how to do this, but I do think there's a sense of, you know, thinking about your bubbles. How big does your bubble need to be for you to feel okay and have your mental health strong? Do you need your parents in it, for example? Right. Uh, do you need your, your barber in it? You know, do, uh, you know, and of course, thinking about some, some folks that you may, to be blunt, may not think that, that you want them in your bubble, but 
you know, their vulnerable population, whatever, how you actually do this to max, you know, for, for the greater good of everyone else. Well, that's, and I think that's what we need to look at. I agree. Um, is, yeah, is, is making it big enough so that it works um, and people feel good about themselves, but also have the ability to sort of seal off, because I think that's going to be the issue with things like pandemics, is then how do you seal these things off when you need to? And they have to be in place. Those those ideas have to be in place before the before the before the pandemic hits. Well, again, a human, a pretty human reaction, Justin, would be to circle the wagons, so to speak, around the most vulnerable. You talked about your parents and and the fact that they are you're, you're dealing with them on a virtual level, and it's it's both wonderful and frustrating at, at the same time. But you're, in, in the the bet in the interest of, of caring for them and, and making sure their isolation is what keeps them alive, uh, it, that. That would be, I think, a pretty human tendency. Let's let's circle uh, and protect the weak, and then we'll we'll figure out the rest from there. Is is that a, 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 a the again historically? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, no, certainly. I think um, you know that's one possibility. Of course, the other the the, the other uh, thing that that uh, that comes to mind for me is is of course looking at the ways in which elderly are treated. Uh, today versus the way they have done in the past mm-hmm. because another i think another my my you know counter proposal might be that hey that when we see a pandemic hitting that maybe what we should be doing is is um clearing out those um those old age homes other places that are that have been particularly vulnerable to the pandemic spreads you know and having people come back into um you know into their families if they're if it's possible and if not coming up with ways to do that so i think also it may be identifying those high-risk places like i mean prisons as well you know uh temporary workers things like that and how do we and 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 the the ways in which we can um empty out those locations because because i think there's either two things you know uh, certainly as you said as you said was okay either we circle the wagons around them mm-hmm. or we or we empty them out so that they're, they're no longer an issue to be as concerned about and then, of course, you form those bubbles or form form those broader, um, you know, interaction spheres, if you will, with those people already included. So, um, and once again, I don't know what the answer is. I think there are some some ideas that we can get from the past. But to me, the biggest thing is that we can't make these decisions on the fly at the moment it's happening. We have to talk about them now. You know, I, I think the tendency. I know it's going to be for me is that you just want to, you know, when this is all over, you want to just walk out and pretend it didn't happen. And, <laughs> yeah, right. And, and uh, you know, but you can't do that because we are in an increasingly interconnected world. It's going to happen again in some form. And we have to think through, okay, what were, you know, where were those vulnerable spots? What was our mental health like? What were all these issues? And come up with something better. And my, my point, you know, as someone that looks at the deep past is, you know, we, you know, let's look at this particular instance, but we can look at many other times people have dealt with challenges and come up with some, some novel solutions. Now, I agree with you, and I also hope that when those conversations begin, and I don't think they are yet because the, the, the efforts at this point are being led by a combination of scientists and politicians. So at the moment, uh, and the politicians are clearly in charge. So, Justin, the problem seems to be right now that the emphasis is not on the greater good as is mu- as it is as much on vote for me next time. And we're going to have an election soon. 
And that sort of muddies the waters. But I agree that the conversation does need to start now. Can you feel that momentum gathering in, in your academic circles and, and uh, overlapping with the, the other uh, groups that you, you deal with? Can you feel a momentum for this conversation? It's time has come. Let's get down to the table and start working things out. I think I do see a bit of momentum there. You know, uh, you know, I would say that so much of the focus in the academic community, understandably, has been about vaccination, of vaccine course. distribution, uh, things. You know, the, the sort of the health issues. The, the I, should, I, I should say sort of targeted health. You know, is someone uh, actively sick with COVID versus some of the long term effects, which I think people have been talking about, but we've been so worried about the about about the virus itself that haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about the impacts a lot of the funding has gone to into that and so what i, I am hoping though we are talking about that as as these vaccines roll out as people stop stop worrying less about the the disease itself that we'll get more funding we'll get more interest and hopefully have some some cross conversation because yeah i, I agree the politicians shouldn't be in charge but to be frank to all, I should, should think that the epidemiologist shouldn't be in charge either in terms of thinking about post-COVID and the ways in which we should be dealing with, because there's lots of other voices that should be heard in terms of social costs and ways in which we can restructure things um, so that we want a multiplicity of voices um, in this to sort of think about the way to get through it. Yeah, I, yeah. I think we're, we're going to go there. And I, but that's the problem, you know, is that we're very short-sighted as a species, and we've seen that once again over the last, you know, thousands of years. And we have to sort of stop and say, okay, Let's actually spend the next few years thinking about this, you know, investing in, 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 in infrastructure that may not be needed. Um, mm. And, you know, it's not simply things like, for, uh, for example, it's all been, been a lot of conversation, at least here in the Toronto area, about, uh, about not having capacity to, to, uh, to produce the vaccines in Canada. Well, we also have to make sure we have the infrastructure in place so that, like I said, we can go ahead and what are we going to be be doing with um, with the elder? What are we going to be doing with other populations that are concentrated? And that that that, that, like uh, that lack lack of domestic now. production, by the way, is going to be a real impetus to getting this conversation up and running. Justin, I'm out of time. Uh, very quick okay, final sir. final question for you. I grew up in Toronto. One of my favorite places in the whole wide world was, as a kid, the the uh, lobby, the foyer of the original Royal Ontario Museum with that T Rex uh, skeleton, which was terrifying and fascinating all at the same time is it still there and is the museum open these days so the, T- the t-rex is there but he's but he's moved uh moved up uh, up a floor to the new we have this new uh well not so new now but about uh 15 years old uh crystal building um but we you can now go through the foyer so you can go through that original opening again so that's great people do enjoy that but the museum is closed yeah it's closed since december 26th it continues to be closed and we're optimistic it'll be open um as Toronto opens, and, and hopefully that'll be by the end of the month, but uh, no one knows. That's right. Dr. Jen- Justin Jennings, thanks very much for doing this fascinating article at theconversation.com and a wonderful conversation to begin the show on a Sunday morning, sir. Great to talk to you. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to do so again down the road sometime. Thank you.
There's Justin Jennings at the Royal Ontario Museum in Tirana. The federal government this week added 13 new extremist groups, including the Proud Boys, to the criminal code list of terrorist entities, freezing their assets and opening up people who are affiliated with them to criminal sanctions. The move is a major step towards combating ideologically motivated extremist sentiment in Canada, and officials suggest Canada is the first country to make the decision to label the Proud Boys as a serious threat. So a lot of Canadians went, oh, well, it's about time. Not all Canadians approved. There was a column in McLean's magazine designating the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization is a mistake. So here to sort it all out is, and it's a pleasure to welcome Sarah Teach to the program. Sarah is the newest senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. She is an international human rights lawyer and a counterterrorism expert. Sarah Teach, good morning and welcome. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Saw you on TV the other day and thought, you know, this person knows what she's talking about. Must try to get her on the radio as well. So thank you for doing this with us. Why would, well, let's first of all back it right up to the initial announcement by Bill Blair a few days ago, Sarah. Let's talk about what the government of Canada has just done. Sure. Well, I mean, as you just said, the government of Canada, specifically at Public Safety, has listed uh, 13 uh, groups as terrorist entities under the criminal code, including Proud Boys. And, you know, we've been talking the most about Proud Boys, but actually all these other organizations are, you know, these are massive listings as well. Autumn Waffen, uh, AWD, mm-hmm. Space, these are, this is, this, this listing announcement in general really does present a, a clear move to uh, combat right-wing extremism in Canada. Uh, exactly. Now, Daesh is another way of saying ISIS, for those who are unfamiliar with that particular word. So this is the worst of the worst in, on this list, isn't it? Oh, ISIS was already listed. I, maybe I mispronounced something. I, I said uh, Adam Wathen, uh, AWD, and the base. And so talk to us a little bit about why these groups were included, Sarah, and others, people would be sitting there, well, you didn't put those guys on the list. What, what are the criteria that uh, establish the Im- imperative that these groups be called out and identified? That's, first of all, that's a really great question, and it really gets to the heart of the McLean's article you referenced. You know, if I... You know, if I read this article correctly, anyway, it's, uh, you know, his argument was, in part at least, that the Proud Boys aren't as bad as these other organizations. He mentions these militias that are these hardened guys up in the mountains prepping for the race war. Right. And, you know, that argument is sort of, it's, it's sort of a red herring, in my opinion. It's just because there are other worse organizations doesn't mean that the Proud Boys shouldn't be listed as well. You know, list them all. It's fair enough, Right. And, you know, more than that, it's if you're preparing for a race, a race war, but you're not actually doing anything yet, that actually probably doesn't meet the definition, the criteria to be listed. So, uh, yeah, it is useful to go through that. It basically, it's, you know, the public safety minister can list an entity as a terrorist group under the criminal code. Right. If that entity has knowingly carried out, attempted to carry out, participated in or facilitated a terrorist activity. And then terrorist activity is defined in the criminal code as you know, an act or a mission that's committed for a political, religious, or ideological purpose with the intention of intimidating the public or a segment of the public, and that intentionally uh, endangers life or causes serious risk to the safety of the public. Sure. So that's sort of what it comes down to. So it has to be sort of active, right, or an omission that causes all those things. So preparing in the mountains for a future war, I'm not sure actually would fit that bill. 
And the Proud Boys, I mean, it, it seems to me that it does. Granted, a lot of the evidence Blair relied on, you know, is you know, confidential. But even the insurrection at the Capitol seems to fit that definition. Indeed. Well, and here in B.C., of course, part of our province, not a very large part of it, but part of our province is, borders the state of Idaho. It's mostly Washington, but we do border Idaho. And so British Columbians, Sarah, have become quite accustomed over several decades to survivalist militias in Idaho, hiding out in the woods and preparing for Armageddon in one form or another. That's been sort of part of our daily lives for a long time you don't pay a great deal of attention to them but you know they're there so that does not represent the kind of threat that the the certainly the insurrection at the united states capitol a couple of weeks ago represented there's no comparison i don't think right and I, I agree i think preparing for something is a lot different than actually doing something and uh, we, uh, I suppose, uh, do we know, for example, that in the activities in Washington a couple of weeks ago, uh, we definitely know that the Proud Boys organization were involved. Do we know if there were any Canadians on the scene? It's a great question. I, and I don't think we know that, or at least I don't know that. You know, perhaps Blair knows that, and that's, again, confidential. Mm. Uh, we know that the Proud Boys played a pivotal role in that inter- insurrection, but um, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, the McLean's article, while he conflates some, you know, various concepts, he does make some good points. One of them is that, you know, talking about Gavin being a Canadian, the founder of Proud Boys being a Canadian, is a, a sort of, he says it's a kind of misdirection. And he's right. Actually, that's not required in that definition. I just cited off to you. It, you know, it doesn't, there doesn't have to be a strong connection to Canada for a, an entity to be listed as a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, that Gavin McInnes, the uh, the founder of of uh, Proud Boys, is a Canadian, uh, and for some reason, and I was just, uh, poking around doing a little homework in advance of this uh, chat this morning, and in a lot of American articles, I found the Proud Boys founder being a Canadian always gets included in the description of the group, and I wonder why. I I wonder why as well. It's, that's a really interesting question. You know, I can sort of hypothesize that perhaps. You know, they're trying to uh, justify in the future maybe a listing in the states. But what's interesting is listing a terrorist group in the states is a lot harder in a sense because they can only list foreign terrorist organizations. So perhaps that's sort of like a laying the groundwork for being able to argue, oh, the Proud Boys is, you know, it's in the U.S., but it's also a foreign terrorist group, you know, Gavin's Canadian. So maybe that's what's happening. I, I can only guess. It's really interesting. Let me, let me use an American phrase on you. Clear and present danger. We're going to hear that a lot in the days ahead with the second impeachment trial in the Senate of Donald Trump. Uh, clear right. and present danger is thought to be a description of what the Proud Boys represent to the United States of America. Do you think the Proud Boys in Canada represent a clear and present danger to the Canadian establishment? You know, I wish I had an answer for that question. Unfortunately, I don't. It seems that a lot of the uh, info that was relied on here was confidential, and so we don't know it. You know, what we do know is that right-wing extremism in general is rising across the world. That's sort of widely accepted among counterterrorism experts. Mm -hmm. The UN recently said it was 320% of an increase around the world, and that transnational links are rising across those years as well. So it sort of checks out, but I unfortunately, I don't have any 
all that data is not it doesn't seem to be public. Yeah, at the same time, the government, if the government is going to move to this designation, uh, clearly they have sufficient intelligence, you would hope, to, to back up this this rather extreme move. Right, exactly. And uh, so, are you, are you well, again, they would not, this, this is not an undertaking that any government does lightly. Right, these, invest, these, um, these investigations take, in some cases, many years, and what we saw with uh, Blair's statement uh, just a few days ago is that he he clarified that this uh, investigation into the Proud Boys activity has been ongoing for years. And yeah. The other organizations as well. I mean, we look at, you know, the, some of the Al-Qaeda affiliates in Mali, and there was an occupation in northern Mali wherein those organizations were, you know, critically involved. That was in 2012, right? Nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So these investigations do take quite a long time. Joined on the line from Toronto by Sarah Teach, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and an international counterterrorism expert. We're talking about the decision by the government of Canada a few days ago to designate the Proud Boys, among other groups. There were 13 in total as a terrorist organization. And, and Sarah, I'm going to call upon your legal expertise to help sort this one out. Uh, again, just multiple uh, stories that I've read. And here's, here's a paragraph. For example, this talk talks about the the uh, the designation of the proud boys as a, a terrorist organization allows them a special consideration under the criminal code for example quote any future purchasing Proud Boys merchandising from the group could now be considered a criminal act in this country, though belonging without any financial ties to the group is not illegal. So it's illegal to buy a T-shirt, but it's okay to join? I'm afraid I, I don't. That one baffles me completely. Help me out here. Uh, so, you know, that actually it baffles me as well that, you know, being a member of a terrorist group is not a criminal offense. It probably should be, but it's not. So, that's sort of an odd little element of that section of the criminal code. And then in terms of purchasing things, you know, if that's, uh, that's not a criminal offense, it's not worded that way, I should say. It's not like the criminal code says, you must not buy a T-shirt from a <laughs> listed uh, Right, right, right. I was boiling <laughs> it down a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But it's that, you know, when it's, because it's worded a bit differently, there's a little bit more nuance and, you know, legal confusion, I should say. So it's basically, you know... Canadians aren't allowed to uh, collect or provide property or financial or other services. Right. Uh, so that could be a sort of that could be interpreted to mean you know you can't pay membership dues or you know stuff like that. And then the other one that could be interpreted to say that is the participation offense, and that's you know anyone who participates in or contributes to any activity of a terrorist group is committing a crime if it's for the purpose of enhancing their ability to facilitate or carry out terrorist activity. So. You sort of have to argue it either way, but, you know, it's it's enough that police could probably charge you for something like that and then make those, those sort of required legal arguments. Yeah, it would, it would sort of seem to fall under enabling in one way or another, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit uh, about the ability of Canadians who are members of this organization to travel. For example, as I understand it, part of the new orders are that the Canadian Border Services will not allow anyone identified as a member of the Proud Boys or any of those other organizations designated this week. They're not to be allowed into the country anymore. They are persona non grata, full stop, right? Uh, I'm actually not sure that's that's true. I, you know, I know that it's 
if you're not a Canadian and you're trying to enter Canada on a visa or, you know, you're applying for a visa or what have you, you can be denied entry. It's called a criminal inadmissibility. So being a member of a listed terrorist group can result in, you know, criminal inadmissibility. I'm not sure they cannot let a Canadian in back into the country. Ah, okay. What about the revocation of passports? If you are determined to be an active member of this now determined terrorist organization, does the government have the right to step in and revoke your passport? Yeah, that's, that's a, a means that the Canadian government has. We saw that being debated a lot with, you know, ISIS foreign fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we take away their passport and or should we take away citizenship? And that was a big debate in terms of revocation of, of those types of things. So, yeah, you can, you can be, um, your passport can be revoked. That's true. Uh, Sarah, let's talk a little bit about the implications of this. This as, um, uh, Again, there were 13 groups identified. None of them were, would be, I, I think, objected to by, by most Canadians. They are decidedly unwelcome people in our midst. Uh, designed by politicians to make us feel better uh, and also to provide our legal system with some more sanction potential uh, in terms of of regulating uh, some of their activities ultimately will we will this this new definition and putting them into a new column of a legal uh, area will that should that make us feel better i think so i think it makes us i think it will probably make us safer i should note that the legal definition hasn't actually changed that was a a concern that uh is you know, in particular, left-wing groups had, you know, they were worried about potentially having to widen the definition of terrorist activity to fit in the Proud Boys and the implications that could have, for example, the uh, putting on the list of far-right, you know, far-left groups like even the Indigenous uh, Railway protests that we saw last year, right? So it's um, that was a concern, but that didn't actually happen. They just fitted it into, into um, the current definition. Um, and, you know, that's another actually... The McLean's article made another pretty good point about, well, we don't want to force these people underground. Well, that's it. Uh, right. And that's, that's a strong point. And really, it's we don't know uh, the effect that the listing has on groups. There hasn't been like a study done on that. So, you know, it's he he makes a very good point. But the fact of that matter is we don't know if that happens. We don't know how frequently that happens. You know, it's the, the listing comes with uh, real teeth in the sense that banks will freeze assets. And so to me, I, you know, I think that would probably be a, po- a positive and drive them or drive at least some of the members uh, away from the group. And also if the group doesn't have assets, how do they operate? Right. So I think that probably has some very positive effects, but, you know, driving them underground versus members being disillusioned and leaving, you know, really we need, a, we need sort of a research study to determine what happens most of the time. Well, and a good final point to you, Sarah. It's so good to have you with us this morning. We do appreciate it. You talked about assets. If they don't have any money to finance their organization, there's not going to be much of an organization down the road. Does this new designation give the Department of Finance or the Government of Canada the ability to even to more finely or more carefully follow the money at all times? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the government could already do that. What's really uh, new about this listing is that banks uh, will have to freeze their assets and they actually have to report regularly uh, to their regulating authority regarding what assets, if any, they're holding on to. So again, it's another uh, it's another tool in, in the, the chest for the government to be able to monitor and surveil. Yes, exactly. Sarah Teach, thank you for this. It's great to have you on the show. I look forward to an opportunity to do this again. You're a wonderful guest and it's been a pleasure. Thanks.
Sarah Teach joining us from the McDonald Laurier Institute, where she is a senior fellow and a counterterrorism expert in Toronto. Dominic Vogel is our guest. Always a pleasure to welcome Mr. Vogel back. He is the founder and chief security strategist at Cyber SC, here to talk to us about Clearview AI and facial recognition, well, uh, security, among other things. Dominic, good morning and welcome back. Morning, Sterling. Always a pleasure to chat with you on Sunday morning. Well, it's good to have you with us again. Now, look, can, for the benefit of those, it's early in the day. Some people still working on their first cup of coffee. I'm on my second. Uh, let's uh, to remind everyone, Dominic, if you would, please, the the nature of the Clearview AI allegations, because this is massive. All of the privacy commissioners in Canada, including Michael McAvoy here in British Columbia, are appalled by this and have said so in no uncertain terms. So back us up and remind us what Clearview AI did, please. Well, you know, basically it's a it's a uh, facial recognition software or, or platform which basically combs social media and other websites for pictures of you know, people's faces and, and other uh, personal identifiers through, through pictures. And this organization was collecting this data in a, in a way uh, which was violating privacy policies and privacy uh, regulations and. Uh, in the country here, and that's why you know the privacy commissioners took a stand against that. And uh, um, it was it's quite scary when you have organizations doing things and and not not abiding by uh, by the law. Well, I suppose the the uh, the, the underlying factor that it is making most people uh, even angrier, Dominic, is the fact that all of this gathering of information about us uh, based on our postings on I'm assuming every, all the platforms, TikTok, LinkedIn, pick one, and if you're posting on it, you are susceptible to have that information. But it's it's not only taken and used without your permission. It's sold for profit to third parties. You don't get any royalties for that either, do you? No, uh, absolutely not. You know, and uh, I think again, it, it speaks to the stark contrast between uh, even how privacy is viewed in much of the U.S. as well. I mean, this is a, a U.S. organization. Yeah, you know, it's in and, New York. Uh, yeah, and and for them to be flouting uh, and pretty much disregarding uh, Canadian privacy regulation. Uh, I would only imagine that uh, they'd be um, they have uh, they have no uh, customers in the European Union either, and the Europeans view privacy even more seriously than than we do here. You know, so it, it, it's uh, it was quite startling. Like I said, the um, bravado of them to basically say, "Well, you know, you're, you know, the Canadian government has no jurisdiction over us. We're going to do what we want." Right. Uh, very, very, very troubling to see organizations take uh, take that type of uh, uh, stance. You know, do that's, we- uh, yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Do we know how long this has been going? They've been caught and busted now. But do you know how long that, that this has been going on and how much money they may have potentially scooped before they we caught on to what they were up to? That's a really good question. You know, and, and from what I, I, I saw and read, I mean, it, it sounded like the, the, the most significant Canadian customer was the RCMP. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, they, they, this organization certainly uh, had some... Uh, uh, hefty contracts, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, with the, with the RCMP, you know, so uh, I'm sure they're coming up financially ahead for whatever Canadian <laughs> dealings that they uh, that they did have. Uh, to me, it, it sounds like it's been going on for anywhere, I'd say, 18 to 36 months. Uh, I haven't read anything official, uh, but it's definitely not something which has only been happening for a month or two. Um, so, you know, I, I um, as I mentioned, I give full credit to the privacy commissioners for taking a very firm stand and, and saying enough. 
Well, yeah, and and this this phenomenon though that uh, they've been caught uh, doing on a massive scale, and one would imagine for massive amounts of money, Dominic. But the concept of data mining has been around for years. It's just been it's never been uh, elevated to this kind of level of sophistication before, or has it? And we just don't know about it. Well, for for, for sure, you know, and I think that, again, it still speaks to the very reactive nature of. Of, um, of policy, especially the privacy policy in in the in the country, you know, so they are reacting to when these situations arise, um, you know. So I think it, it does speak to the fact that the, um, uh, the the Canadian government and the privacy commissioner still have a lot of work to do in terms of laying out and looking at you know new technologies into the future, especially around like AI. There's really no clear uh, policy uh, in terms of uh, organizations being able to gather that type of. Uh, data, what they are allowed to do with it. So it, it, while it's nice that the Canadian government, or sorry, the privacy commissioners called them out on it, we need to start developing some serious policies around modern technology. Well, didn't we have a situation with one of the major mall companies in Canada where they had yeah. kiosks in their, in their malls where people would walk up to try to find out where the shoe store is? Well, inside one of those big uh, things, they had a camera and they were, they were taking pictures of people's faces and storing the information. So again, uh, and, and there was a bit of an outrage and an outcry after all of that, but I don't recall anything being done because of it, aside from a lot of people being very angry. It, it, exactly. I mean, you know, that, that was Cadillac Fairview. Yeah. And, you know, they, they were sort of given the equivalent of a, a wrist slap and told, you know, to stop being naughty boys and to, to stop doing that. But uh, again, I think that, that, that speaks to the uh, um, topic in terms of like, at the end of the day, we're at the tip of the iceberg here. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know how many other organizations are doing this. Uh, to what degree uh, we're just like I said this to me we're at the tip of the spear tip of the iceberg I think there's still a lot of um, you know gory stuff for us to uncover before we uh, um, start getting ahead of the situation yeah now let's let's talk a little bit about methodology here because this this uh, Clearview AI this New York company that was doing this with the Mounties and everybody else this was a huge huge operation uh, and and you contrast that with something that you encounter as uh, on a more daily basis as founder and chief strategist over there at Cyber SC, Dominic. Let's talk about other strategies bad guys use out there on the web that ref- that are similar to what Clearview did, just not as massive. Uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about, on a, on a much smaller scale, ransomware attacks, because that's what this could have turned into, couldn't it? Well, there's certainly the the the, um, the, uh, the possibility that that information, especially how uh, this uh, AI organization seemed to be um, uh, less than ethical in their in their approach to businesses, we don't know who they're dealing with. You know, there's certainly the hypothetical. That who are they selling it to? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that those could be criminal uh, uh, organizations that would be leveraging that biometric uh, information to to. Uh, to, uh, to commit more believable phishing scams or, or, or ransomware or what have you, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, I think that's that's the sort of the scary what if scenario. You know, and uh, when when you have these gray laws, uh, it, it gives the opportunity for these less than ethical organizations to sort of take advantage of those loopholes. You know, so I think we really need to tighten those loopholes. And to your point there about smaller organizations, you know. What, what what should they be uh, focused on? What they should be worrying on? Um, while again, big stories like this are certainly uh, worrisome 
I'm still a big believer for small organizations. It's about focusing on the basics and doing them well. Uh, there's so many basics that many organizations are not doing when it comes to cybersecurity, like multi-factor authentication, as an example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, take control of things that you can control, and then on the government side, make sure that you're reaching out to your uh, to your MLAs, to your MPs, and make sure that they're they're taking cybersecurity and, and data privacy seriously for the country, and they're moving that forward. Dominic Vogel from Cyber SC on the line, and Dominic, here's a quote from your website, cyber.sc. Keeping a fast-growing business safe from cyber attack keeps most informed business leaders up at night. And I imagine these days that's a very true statement. So let's talk a little bit about uh, basic a plan. I, I suppose you got to have a plan and that's, uh, that's where you have to start. If you're going to have, as more and more people are discovering an online presence just to survive in 2021, that online presence has to be secure. Absolutely, you know, and, and to me, you know, especially for for small businesses, you know, to me, I always have a a, a rule of three. <laughs> just just kind of, even trying to like said the before the break, you know, doing the basics and doing them well. You know, the, the the first thing is just a, a, an acceptance that uh, you need to treat cyber risk as a business risk. You know, right. Far far too many business business owners and CEOs, and uh, especially in the uh, small mid sized business space, who view cybersecurity as just a technical domain. The oh, you know, our IT guy has has uh, oversight of that, or you know, we trust our IT service provider, our IT team. Um, that That's just not uh, a legally defensible uh, approach now. You know, if your organization suffers a data breach, you know, if you as the CEO or someone on the board of directors, as an example, you can't say, oh, I trusted my IT guy. Right. Uh, you, you are legally uh, culpable, you know. So it, it's, it's number one is make take ownership of that risk. Um, so that's that's number one. Number two, and I, as I mentioned as well before the break, um, multi-factor authentication, email accounts, anything for remote access, uh, you should be using multi-factor authentication. So that's a username, password, and then uh, what's referred to as again, multi-factor authentication. That could be a one-time PIN sent as a text message to your phone or tied to what's referred to as an authenticator app on your right. mobile device. It really, again, make sure that if your password gets compromised, as long as someone doesn't have access to your phone, your account stays secure. So that's that's point number two. And point number three is keep all your systems up to date. Um, many small businesses, will are, they're even still running old versions of Windows sure. um, or you know, not keeping their applications up to date. Uh, the, the analogy I give is that it's no different than getting your, your, your vaccines, you know, uh, especially as, you know, if you have a young child, you know, when they're born, they go through their, their vaccine uh, program. Keeping your systems updated is basically a digital vaccine to make sure that you don't get uh, uh, hit by viruses and, and malware and that type of thing. So those three things, if they, any business just does anything, those three things will put them in a very good position. All right. I want to follow up on a couple of those, but we did open the phone lines, uh, 604-280-9898. And Jesse has decided to take us up on our offer to join us. Jesse, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead to Dominic, please. Yeah, so I just got a got a quick question for you. So, you know, the RCMP is there to uphold the law, right? And they obviously blatantly broke the law by accepting a contract of from a company that was breaking the law. Now, if I were to buy a stolen merchandise from somebody that stole something and I got arrested with it, the RCMP is going to charge me with stolen property because I knowingly bought something that was stolen. So who in the RCMP because they blatantly disregarded the law and their job is to uphold the law, who in the RCMP is going to be held accountable? Who's going to be charged? 
who's going to be let go? That's a very, very fair question. Uh, We're dealing with a government agency, of course, and the current government accepts no responsibility for anything. But it's a fair question, Dominic. I mean, they they got played. I don't think anybody at the RCMP went into that deal with Clearview with eyes wide open going, oh, this will be this will be straight up. I think they got played and got played rather badly and taken probably for a big dollar ride in the process. You think anybody's going to take a fall for this? Well, you know, and, and uh, I mean, the, the, the caller certainly does bring up a, a good point around accountability. Um, I, I will definitely, you know, underline the fact that you know, the RCMP didn't blatantly disregard the law. The, the law is very gray, you know, and there's room for liberal interpretations of, of it. Um, the RCMP was certainly, I'd say, guilty of not doing sufficient due diligence yep. in terms of deeper uh, privacy analysis around how uh, data and what data was collected. So they're certainly guilty uh, of that. And I know the privacy commissioners are, are looking at that. Um, but I mean, to me, when it, when it comes to accountability issues, I think, again, that, that needs to still come fairly high to the top that someone needs to, uh, at least from a procedural perspective, say, you know, we can't keep making this mistake. We, anytime we're dealing with citizen data, we need to do a deep dive analysis from a privacy perspective. So uh, hopefully there's a procedural maturity that comes out of this situation. Well, no kidding. But further to Jesse's point, you know, if the people who are in charge of the law get taken for a ride by the bad guys, what chance do the rest of us stand in terms of being able to do due diligence? We don't really stand much of a chance at all, except as you recommended moments ago, Dominic, the only thing we can do is stay current, Keep the wall uh, as high and as fresh and as strong as is allowed, and that's all we can do. Uh, absolutely, and I, I truly believe that you know, we're we're entering an age of greater greater um, data privacy and data security advocacy from a, a, a consumer and even from a citizen perspective. So, uh, as those seas um, uh, change over the coming months and, and years, you know, I. Uh, I do see these types of situations becoming less and less frequent. You know, we're still very much in a wild, wild west type yeah, situation. Right. Uh, so I think this this comes with with growth. Again, we saw this type of uh, regulatory immaturity when cars first came out, as an example. You know, there's very little regulation around automobiles for for decades. You know, it wasn't until the late 80s uh, in the U.S. where there was greater regulatory changes around car safety so uh, hopefully it doesn't take as long as it did with cars sure we're, we're, we're going through that sort of changing landscape right now all right back to the phones ron good morning to you thanks for waiting hey good morning sterling uh mr vogel uh you bring up a lot of interesting points but uh, uh something i've used uh, in my tilting at windmills for the last 15 years um call centers uh they're internationally based now uh, the thing is, with the Internet, um, these individuals who do not uh, give their first and last names have access to a plethora of personal information. Um, they don't have to sign in. Uh, they don't have to give photo ID to the people they're talking to. So uh, what about if they abuse the information? Uh, what kind of recourse do we have? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question, you know, and, and, and that's something which um, there, there's definitely uh, actually clear, uh, not necessarily regulatory guidance, but a lot of organizations have, uh, especially big organizations, have clear uh, guidelines and steps uh, uh, um, around that, uh, you know, and for me, really comes down to having the right data security and data privacy controls in place. So, uh, you know, it, you are able to leverage, for lack of a better term, outsource call centers. So, you know, people who aren't physically based in Canada, 
Um, but you need to have the right controls in place to make sure that they're only accessing the data that they should be, uh, that they're not violating any uh, uh, um, privacy um, policy or, or, or regulations. Again, that's where engaging with a privacy expert and or a data security expert uh, is paramount. You know, what we've definitely seen, especially in more regulated industries like healthcare and financial services, organizations that don't set up their call centers properly from a privacy perspective, yeah. uh, they can get hit with regulatory fines. So um, I would say that there's at least clearer precedence with call centers than there are with uh, what happened with that AI situation. <laughs> well, uh, and that's somewhat reassuring because, you know, it's not at all uncommon, Dominic, to, and I'm curious, when I'm talking to someone at a call center, I typically will ask, where are you? I'm in, I'm in, you know, Vancouver, Canada. Where are you? And it's not uncommon to have someone, well, I'm in the Philippines or where, I mean, it's just, it's that kind of global village thing when it comes to those sorts of tasks and subcontracting that work. So yeah, it's, I think it's quite a legitimate concern about uh, how they are gathering the data they take from us on those calls and what laws surround them in the Philippines from, uh, you know, selling stuff that uh, they, they get from Canadians. Uh, absolutely, and, and and that's where you know, like, there's just because of the concept of call centers has been around for quite some time, and we've had the gift of time of trying to uh, operationalize these outsourced call centers. So there, there's much clearer precedent in terms of how they should be set up, how you do due diligence, uh, due diligence around that. Right. If, for example, you know you rely on a uh, third party um, uh, call center. And they they blatantly uh, sell you know your customers' data. Um, you will be held responsible, right? There, there have been uh, legal cases uh, around that, so there's a much clearer legal precedent around that uh, than there is like right now, like so. Uh, uh, comparing that to something like so that AI situation, simply because we've re- been living with call centers exactly. for that much longer. Exactly. It's, it's a known known. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's good to know because, uh, again, we uh, typically will, uh, you know, you get engaged in, in your call center connection and you, uh, uh, you just have to hope that, they, that the, uh, the information is, is being guarded. But under the circumstances, given that we've had this sort of uh, activity going on for a long time. Uh, final question to you, 30 seconds. Are the, is the frequency of attacks on small business plateaued, increasing by the day, or are they starting to taper off? Uh, the, the, especially during COVID, they, they have increased. You know, they've doubled and tripled. We are living in a perfect psychological storm uh, where uh, scammers and criminals can take advantage of the fact that people are stressed. They're pulling a million different directions. Yeah. Uh, this has created the perfect psychological storm. So people, um, as tiring as it is, that they need to be super vigilant now more than ever. All right. For more information on cybersecurity, I recommend Mr. Vogel's website, cyber.com. SC, founder and chief strategic planner at cyber.sc, Mr. Dominic Vogel. Thanks for joining us again, Dominic. Enjoy the Super Bowl. We'll talk again. Cheers, my friend. Thank you again. It's time to talk about the big game. It's always a pleasure to welcome this rascal back to the airwaves of CKNW. Rob Williams is the sports editor at the Daily Hive here in Vancouver. Rob, good morning. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How are you? I am well, thank you. So the Kansas City Chiefs are, I've been just scrambling here during the news, trying to get my latest odds numbers. And I have the Chiefs favored by three and a half points over the Buccaneers about uh, five hours before game time. What uh, what are you hearing in terms of odds? Yeah, those are the odds I got as well. Um, who, do you, who do you like? Who do I like? Well, I like yeah. Kansas. I like Kansas City, but you know, I've learned the hard way: betting against Brady can be expensive. Yeah, that's that's exactly the way I was thinking. It's uh, 
Kansas City has been such an awesome team uh, all year. Uh, they finished with a 14 and two record, uh, but even one, one of their two losses came in the lot, very last game of the season when they were resting players, right, like right. resting most of their starters. Sure. Uh, so, so in effect, they've only they've only lost one meaningful game all season, and of course, they won the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, so they're a star-studded team. Um, they're up against, you know, and, and like you say, like there's that voice in the back of my head going, "Don't bet against Tom Brady." <laughs> yeah, um, right. Because you know, at 43 years old, he's he's uh, led the the Tampa Bay Bucks to the to the Super Bowl, and um, you, you know they didn't have uh, they didn't have a dominating season. Uh, they finished second in their division, but they've you know they they got on a winning streak at the end of the season, and they've been rolling through the playoffs. So um, you know, it's it's I think it's going to be a great matchup, and 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 the other thing kind of in this in the mix here is that. Uh, Tampa Bay's playing at home. Yeah. That's the first, we've never seen this at a Super Bowl before. We've seen it for Grey Cup. I was going to ask you about uh, that. That's right. It's the very first time uh, that a team has played at home in the Super Bowl. Um, so I think that's going to add an element as well. Well, of course, there will be actual people there. And I know that in Florida, that's not altogether unusual it's through, through the pandemic. They're one of the few states that have allowed some limited numbers of spectators at sporting events. But still, uh, the, you get the combination of being on your home turf and having a few fans in the stands, presumably cheering for you mostly. Uh, is there, because of the weirdness of this year, is there a home field advantage really, do you think, Rob? I think there there will be an element of home field advantage. So there will be twenty five thousand people in attendance. Right. You know the the stadium holds uh, sixty five thousand. <clears throat> um, there will be um, seventy five hundred vaccinated healthcare workers will right. be among them as well. Um, so there will be a there will be a mix of of fans. I'm sure from both teams and some neutral fans. But it you know it's going to be a pro Tampa Bay. Uh, audience, so I, I think that you know twenty five thousand is not nothing. I think they will be able to, to generate some noise and, I, and um, you know make it a little less comfortable uh, for Kansas City. Um, but of course, it's not like you know it's not going to be deafening noise like it would be if it was if the the stands were packed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's are you expecting a good game? I'm expecting what my dad used to call a corker of a game. I think it's going to be just <laughs> great. Yeah, no, so do I. I, I think this is a, it's a, like I said before, I, mean, I think it's a great matchup and, and, and the star power is, I mean, the star power is off the charts for this game, you know, starting with the quarterbacks, but, but going through, uh, you know, particularly both offenses, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a, a lot of, um, game breakers in this in this one no question about it let's stay in the state of florida as we change gears ever so smoothly and pop over to the other side of the state where roberto luongo lives and of course he of the multiple gold medals uh, a soft spot in every vancouverite's heart for roberto and he's now part of the management team bobby lou for team canada should we ever go to the olympics next he's going to be in charge of the goalies that's right. Yeah, he was named an assistant general manager. Uh, don't know that this was necessarily on everyone's radar, but uh, yeah, named named an assistant general manager. Uh, you know, his responsibility will will be uh, looking after the goalies, and now this all it all hinges on on NHL players going to the Olympics, yeah. which is 
part of the last uh, collective bargaining agreement um, that the NHL owners and players agreed to last last summer. So, uh, yeah, he'll be the, he'll be the assistant GM. They've got a loaded uh, loaded management group headed by St. Louis Blues general manager Doug Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other guys uh, involved: uh, Ken Holland, you know, longtime Red Wings general manager, now with Edmonton. Uh, Ron Francis, who's the uh, used to be in Carolina, but of course is now the new going to be the new Seattle. Seattle, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're among the the uh, the group as well as uh, Don Sweeney and uh, Scott Salmon. So um, yeah, the lists are already starting to come out of uh, you know people starting to project the the Olympic team and and boy, it feels like a, like a million years since we've been able to do that because of course uh, the NHL didn't go to the the last Winter Olympics in 2018. That's right. So it has been quite a while, and so it's it's not too far fetched, especially with hockey swirling around us, to at least relax for a little bit and imagine what the next Canadian Olympic team is going to look like. And and of course, the question comes to me almost immediately: Is Stamkos going to be on this one, Rob? He's been injured, wounded, or otherwise <laughs> indisposed. He should have been on every one of them for the last several, and one can only hope he makes this one. Yeah, no, I, I I am with you there. I, the other guy I feel for is uh, Connor McDavid. I mean, sure. he hasn't he, he hasn't had the opportunity to play for Team Canada in a meaningful like best on best tournament. He's he's twenty four. He'll be he'll be twenty five next year and still have never played on on anything like that because. Of course, 2018, they didn't. Canada or uh, the NHL didn't go to the Olympics. Right. And also, you remember the 2016 World Cup of Hockey? They had that goofy uh, under 23 North oh, American. That's team. right. Yeah. So McDavid, you know, instead of instead of playing with with uh, uh, Crosby and everybody and having this super team, McDavid was on the the U23 team. So it's it's been a bizarre. Uh, experience I, I think for him because you know he wasn't in the league in 2014 when uh when the nhl last went to the olympics well let's hope that uh I mean, wouldn't it be lovely to see crosby and mcdavid on the same line i just hope sid still uh is strong enough and healthy enough to make the team i expect he would be but you know time marches on uh rob i need to take a couple of minutes because you're the guy on the beat here in vancouver you're the one of the few allowed into the arena during practices and stuff and you get to observe the canucks up close and personal so what the heck's going on we we look great in winnipeg on our first game of this road trip and then we land in montreal and get toasted now we're down two and one more to go in toronto this is not the same team that showed up in winnipeg and was really good for that one game win look great on the plane they go and then somewhere west or rather east of the manitoba ontario border they just seem to lose it yeah, well, we'll always have Winnipeg. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we yeah. will. Yeah, no, I mean, this has been a, um, a shocking start, shockingly poor start to the season for the Canucks. Um, they give up they they give up thirty five point seven shots on goal against. That leads the the entire NHL, and they've led in that category for for a. You know, as, as long as I've been looking at it, so for more than a, more than a week or two, sure, um, they are they are just leaking so 
poorly defensively. They give up four goals a game, and that's second worst. That's the only team worse than that right now are, are the Ottawa Senators, um, and you know they, they've been giving up five plus goals in in most of their games thus far, and, and that is um, a really really telling stat. Uh, and for all of the the changes they made this off season for. Jacob Markstrom leaving and and Chris Tanev leaving and the rest. I think there were I think there were some people you know I think there were some fans that that uh, you know are maybe looking through rose colored glasses thinking okay um, you know the the changes they made the replacements that they brought in um, that the team might be you know about the same as they were last year maybe maybe even improved but I think it's quite clear that this team has lost a lot yeah. And they are in real trouble. But I don't think anybody, even even the the, the worst critics uh, of the team, I don't. Nobody saw this coming. Uh, this is this has been absolutely incredible. They 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 are still managing to score goals, but they just cannot do anything defensively right now. And um, it, it's it's extremely shocking. Well, and the word casual keeps getting used by the play-by-play guys far too frequently. I mean, it's a very West Coasty kind of thing to call a team from the West Coast. But, you know, they have looked a little, well, frankly, casual, a little cavalier about all of this. And uh, they, out of desperation or whatever, uh, addressed Louis Erickson last night to everyone's astonishment. Uh, have the players quit on Travis Green? I, I mean... I think it, watching them, I could see why you'd, you'd come to that conclusion. I just, I just don't see how, like Travis Green, I thought had been up until this season had pretty well pushed all the right buttons, uh, got as much out of uh, out of the players that that I, I think he could have. I, I think they they overachieved last year. I don't think most people didn't think didn't pick them for the playoffs. Like some people were thought it would be. Um, I, th- I think some people thought they they could, but but most of the pundits didn't pick them to make the playoffs. That's true, and they end up they end up going to it within a game of of going to the the conference final. So, just by virtue of of Green's history with the team, I I don't think that that that's what it is right now. But I think like the players <laughs> in, in in the post game interviews. Um, they're having trouble coming up with answers. Yeah, uh, it certainly looks that way. Rob, enjoy the game this afternoon. I have a feeling you will, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to place a bet with you because I don't bet much, and I always lose when I do. So I thank you, as always, for jumping in on the program this morning, and we'll talk soon, okay? Sounds, sounds great. My pleasure. Rob Williams, sports editor, The Daily Hive. Bars and restaurants across the province not expecting a super Sunday when it comes to the Super Bowl game. Uh, Our next guest, BC Restaurant and Food Services Association President Ian Tostenson, has been told by health officials businesses are still allowed to show the game but cannot promote or advertise a Super Bowl event. Ian Tostenson, good morning. How you doing? I'm fine, thank you. You're quoted in an in the Prince George paper that I'm reading <laughs> yeah. this story from as saying it's going to be a bit muted. To be perfectly honest, I think that's yeah. probably the understatement of the week. What's the status this morning, Ian? <laughs> yeah, muted. I don't know what the word is. I mean, this is. I was uh, talking to a number of restaurants this morning just to get their sense, and I think they pointed their, themselves into definitely takeout and delivery 
um, and we could talk about that. But, you know, basically, you know, I think what Dr. Henry is asking us to do is stay home, yeah. don't have a party, and I get that, and we support that. But you know, we're lucky because so many restaurants have been so innovative and put together and put a lot of thought into Super Bowl Sunday, which is a really important day, obviously, for restaurants. But, you know, we just can't. I mean, you can't, as you say, you can't advertise the event. We have to keep it really strict, uh, in, and we'll, we always do a good job at that. But, you know, in technically, you're supposed to be with people in your household, and the TVs are going to be at a low level. Right. So, you know, maybe it's just a bit more fun to stay home and order in this time. This time. I mean, next year's going to be different. But I think you're right. Uh, the word muted is just kind of low-key muted. We don't want to cause any problems that we're going to, you know, in two or three weeks from now because we started a super, super pandemic here. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, we'll, t- we'll talk about the SNAP inspections in a second, but we have not, we have not this time around, unlike the last major strategic event for the hospitality industry, New Year's Eve, we haven't at the 11th and a half hour had some kind of edict come down from Victoria uh, canceling or any of that kind of uh, stuff this time around. No ugly surprises this time, right? No, we've actually worked with uh, Dr. Henry's office. Uh, we've always been working with him, but directly now, ever since New Year's. And they felt bad about New Year's. We understood what their thinking was in New Year's. You know, it was almost like a bit of a last-minute decision, game-day decision, yeah. because they were hearing stuff. But, no, this one, um, in fact, there was a discussion. That we find this interesting, certainly. There was a discussion about three weeks ago. Maybe, just maybe, we should be promoting the fact that people should go out and watch the game in a controlled environment. And that could be, in fact, safer than than just letting people have parties at home. But because where the numbers are, and that would have that would have meant shifting the definition of who can go to a restaurant from, you know, recommended to be with your with your household to your safe six again, they're not quite ready to do that. What I'm finding with the industry, though, is uh, a little bit less um, I mean, it's it's it, listen, it's it's not a happy place for a, most restaurant people right now, but they're starting to see some blue light down down the road here, and I think they're quite happy to have you know a scaled down version of Super Bowl, sure. pick up those sales for takeout and delivery, and just get on with this. And and um, you know and 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 restaurant guys are so interesting because they they're so entrepreneurial and they find ways. To capture, you know, to capture their guests' expectations and that whole hospitality uh, mindset that they have. Let's talk a little bit about the announcement a couple of days ago from WorkSafe BC that they intend to conduct random inspections on Sunday. It was a rather ominous-sounding warning, uh, very clearly stated, we're going to be out there, we're going to keep an eye on you. Was this anticipated, Ian, or is this a bit of a surprise draconian uh, touch? <laughs> it sounds that way, doesn't it? Um they're they're out in, in full force all the time. Yeah. They have been, and it gets more and more. This is just a warning shot by just you know reminding everybody. And I think pretty much I would say Sterling, it's more of a warning for the public. Just say, look, and when you go into a restaurant or bar or a pub, you know, help out, like do the right thing for these guys because you know they are they spent so much time and effort to provide a safe environment. So you know we weren't surprised by that message because they are out there. And they've been very good to work with. They haven't been unnecessarily uh, overbearing on anything. They've been very consultative if a place it needs to be adjusted. So 
Um, no, that, I, that, was, that was kind of expected. I yeah. think we would be, if we didn't hear those messages from government at a time when they're telling us to stay home, it would be kind of weird. Well, you know, one thing I have learned, and uh, the hard way, uh, of course, uh, is that <laughs> when you go to an establishment, whether you're just popping out with some friends for lunch or you're going to a sports bar to watch the Super Bowl or whatever, you are required to stay where you are. Table hopping is not allowed. I love to table hop, work in the room, all that stuff. It's just off, Ian. It is not going to happen this year. Stay in your group, right? Yep, you got to stay at your table. And this is the you know, it's like it's like almost like a school thing, right? You got to stay stay at your table. You can't table hop. Um, you can't get up and cheer. You can't scream and yell. You got to keep it really low key. Uh, the TV is going to be a low volume. And um, you've got to wear a mask if you happen to leave your table and go, say, to the washroom. Sure. Yep. And, and you know what? It was been, I've been quite, quite uh, I don't know what the word is, but it's incredulous. People have really accepted this. It's, I remember going into a restaurant about eight or nine months ago, and I saw some of the uh, staff wearing masks, and I went, oh, this is not good. Mm-hmm. This is a really the wrong. But now, uh, it's just a matter of people have really done a great job. The public have done a really good job of navigating around that. We're, we're getting very few instances now of people complaining about wearing masks yeah. or, you know, or I want to sit with 10 people, not six people. I, I, by and large, the public have been totally awesome over this whole thing. Yeah, I think we're pro- sort of at the, the point that uh, the, the whole business of mask wearing is a little beyond a political statement. We just got to get this over with. And if the easiest way to help get it over with is wear a blinket mask, and I don't like wearing masks at all, but I wear one. We, and you, if, if that helps get this done more quickly, give me two masks. Yeah, that's the point. You know, that's, that's the absolute point. That's why you know, we could come out and say, no, no, come on out, let's, you know, in, in support restaurants. You can do that through the takeout and delivery model. And I and just, you know, well, before I forget, make sure if you're doing that, you can actually pre-order uh, through the delivery apps. If you want to have it delivered, you can pre-order it stuff now and have it delivered later. So people should be thinking about that. But ah. our responsibility as an industry is public safety is first. And until we get a strong... Uh, you know, public uh, pl- or the platform where the pandemic is behind us, our industry is never going to get strong again. So we have to contribute to that. And if it means we take a little bit less business all the time to get there, this industry is prepared to do that. And they've done a great job because to your point, what's the, what's what, you know, we're going to go get, you know, have a whole bunch of people out having parties and stuff and everybody gets sick. It's just going to prolong the That's right. for the economy. Yeah, it's going totally. to drag this thing out even longer. Checking in with Ian Tostenson, president and CEO of the British Columbia Restaurant and Food Services Association on the morning of Super Bowl Sunday. And Ian, you made a good point there. We'll go to the phones in just a second. You made a good point earlier about uh, taking out of people who are trying very much to support their restaurants, but still feeling a little uncomfortable about going out and all of that kind of stuff. There's an easy way to do it, and that's just pick up the phone and place an order and have it delivered later in the day and on super yep. bowl sunday it's not a half bad idea to get that order in because it's going to be a little busy well a lot of in a lot of places there's some really creative stuff go to your favorite restaurant you see like you can get spaghetti fried chicken burgers pizza you name it mm-hmm. uh there's there's uh, party boxes for two for four there's little bar kits it's very creative i mean where we've come from this time last year to now this whole lot, this whole digitization of the restaurant business yeah. and what they're doing, it's incredible. It really is. So go to your favorite restaurant, check out their website, give them a call. 
I'm sure they'd do anything to uh, to make sure you have a great yeah, experience for Super Bowl. Excellent suggestion. Uh, to the phones, to uh, Joseph, thank you for waiting. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Sterling. And to Ian, this is a hats off to Ian and all his members. Uh, I endorse what you just said. You're a very professional group. You've managed to keep the warmth and the hospitality in place while looking out for people's health and well-being. I think that you guys have done a superb professional job of carrying on in the spite of all the, uh, the, the protocols that you've been forced to adopt. So I, hats off, I could give you one quick example, but I don't want to name names. But there's one place that really accentuated the access. You could go in there and order your food and your beverage, and it would be at your table within minutes. And along came the pandemic. They didn't miss a beat. They just changed the format slightly. You could still go to your favorite spot, sit down, and and voila, the food was there, the beverage was there. And you guys have shown how it's done right, and I think you've done a superb job. Joseph, thank you very much, Joseph. It's great to hear from you. And Ian, I don't think you hear compliments like that frequently enough. It's it's been a lot of work, and boy, oh boy, an awful lot of investing and uh, pivoting to just stay abreast of all of the protocol changes. Yeah, you know, and you know, Joseph could email us that comment. I'd be more than happy to put that out to restaurants because. When they hear that, it just makes them even want to do it better. And I, and I really appreciate that comment, Joseph, because um, I think that the other side, of, or not the other side of this, but the evidence of what you're saying is that we're one of the only provinces that have been able to remain open you bet. in British Columbia. And it's been that, that determination to put the community health first. I really appreciate that comment. That was awesome. You made my day. Thank you so much. Well, you know, and, and at that nice high note, I, I hesitate to ask you about this little negative that has uh, crept into the conversation in the past week or so, but I, I have to, because you're the guy. And that's that's this surcharge, this 99-cent surcharge that Skip the Dishes has decided to slide in the BC fee, and that uh, counterbalances to some extent them being capped off at 15% instead of 30 Well, I guess we have to pay for those expensive TV commercials commercials one way or another that that's what it strikes me as being you know what that's right i mean they um they, they promote this there's a lot of uh discussion about these these delivery companies because they're advertising themselves and not advertising sterling's restaurant right and so that's a big big issue and um getting quite a, a discussion with them this week they didn't like my comments um i i think i called them tone deaf to add a fee on, and and we subsequently, I don't mind you know sharing the conversation. It, that um, you know calling the BC tax, I think, is disingenuous. It makes it sound like it's a government, and you know they they argued with me that they have to cover their costs and stuff, and I argued back to them is that your you know your biggest customer, i.e., restaurants, are not making if any money at all. Right, and so we just need to have some collaboration here for five or six months. I think they recognize that, that it was in bed. It, it went across really poorly, especially when you have the premier uh, commenting on it. So, um, don't it shouldn't deter people from using the apps. I mean, generally the costs now are down to fifteen percent. Yes, um, which is great from thirty percent. So it's still it, you know it's way better than it was for restaurants. But that you know just adding on a buck is almost a little bit a little bit spicy in my world when we're trying to get this industry off to the other side. 
How can you tell if a restaurant delivers through uh, one of the apps or has their own delivery system, thereby saving themselves some money and maybe even being able to get it to you faster? Yeah, the best way to go is to the restaurant and go to their website. And, and some don't have a website. Phone them. And you're right. Some some now, have, you know, they're working with other little, there's little companies that are popping up in BC that are competitive. We just did a deal with a company called Modern out of Victoria, and um, and they can do these services long-term for less than 15%, so we're going to get there. But you raised a really interesting point, is that it's all about the advertising, and DoorDash and Skip the Dishes have millions of dollars oh, in promotion huge, of their brand. Huge advertising budget. Yeah, you just yeah. see them, they're on all the time. And that's the hard thing for us to establish something. So if you go to the restaurant and, and ha- engage with, with the owner or whoever you at the restaurant, they'll find a way to get the food to you for sure. Okay, so the restaurant, uh, go to the individual restaurant website and, yeah. uh, and, and, they'll, and they'll take it from there or give them a call. Totally. I mean, we're all about the business. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll do it any way we can here. I mean, this is hospitality. I actually had a situation once we used one of the, the delivery companies and it, it was a bad experience. And the general manager, even my mentioning from Joey Shipyards in North Vancouver, he delivered the food to our house personally and said, I'm really sorry. Like, it's amazing the, the sort of things that this industry will do to make sure they engage and keep engaged with their guests, because those are the guests of the future. That's what's going to make this industry successful, you know, as we come out of this. Well, and, you, and you're right to point out that here on this Super Bowl Sunday in British Columbia, at least our restaurants are open. That is not the case across Canada. So uh, we, we can observe the protocols. We can patronize our favorite restaurant either by, uh, by popping in with our, yeah. with our group and, and not table hopping, or we can <laughs> order some stuff and have it delivered home. No table hopping in. 150 million chicken wings will be consumed in Canada some way or, or another today. Are you, are you serious? 150? Yes, one, <laughs> yes, yes, one point, I know. It's 1.4 billion in the States, so we're 10%. Holy cow. So, and then, I, you know, of course, pizza is going to be crazy. Sure. And, uh, yeah, the, and then it's 22 million pounds of cheese. That's like, in the States, it's 20 million pounds of cheese will be consumed, so we're 10%. Two million pounds of cheese will be consumed. Oh, my gosh. And nachos and stuff. Yeah, go for it, huh? Uh, I, now I'm already walking it off here. I, I'm going to walk home from work just so I can have, <laughs> have some, a, good, a good meal at Super Bowl. Ian, totally. thanks for this. Enjoy the game. Kansas City or Tampa Bay, who are you picking? Kansas City. All right. Me too. Have a great day. Everybody. We'll thanks. talk again. Bye. Ian Tostenson, the big guy from the Restaurant Association. Jasmine Chen is on the line. Ms. Chen is the artistic and community producer at Gateway Theater in Richmond. And they have, uh, they're looking ahead to Lunar New Year in a few days, and they have some plans. Jasmine, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back because, you know, we, this is our artistic corner and we've dedicated this particular portion of our program for many months to artistic and community groups all over the province. And Gateway Theatre was one of the very first groups we contacted many months ago. So it's lovely to have you back. Tell us about the, the plan for Lunar New Year, the Year of the Ox, coming up on yeah. Friday. So tell us about the plans uh, so uh, folks uh, can join you and celebrate the new year and uh, be very safe in the process. Yes, thank you so much and thank you for continuing to support the arts. Um, Lunar New Year is is 
such a joyous time. It's a time of celebration. It's usually a time where many families are coming together, usually with lots of food and mm-hmm. laughter and many different generations. And so while we may not be able to see all of our family members the way that we usually do right now, we wanted to offer something that would bring culture into people's homes and a sense of play and a sense of imagination. And so what we're offering is two different, actually three, um, Chinese shadow puppetry virtual workshops. Okay. These are workshops that take place over Zoom, so you get to zoom in from the comfort of your own home and and in a safe manner. And we've engaged a really amazing artist named Annie Katsura Rollins. She is Canada's preeminent Chinese shadow puppetry scholar. She is a doctor as well. Um, So she uh, did all of her field research in China where she learned how to make Chinese shadow puppets. Um, and perform in them. And this is a, uh, an artistic practice that is thousands of years old. Um, so Annie will be leading people through this workshop. So you'll get a chance to learn some of the history. Um, you'll get to see some of her work. And then participants will get to make their own shadow puppet. And then Annie will teach you how to use it and how to perform with them. Well, I'm, I'm looking, um, at, I'm looking mm-hmm. at the website here, Jasmine, your website, Gateway Theater. Dot com, by the way, friends. Uh, and uh, there's this whole Chinese shadow puppetry workshop page uh, with Annie very prominently featured. Uh, and and uh, mm-hmm. it also is a segment here called Materials You'll Need. And there's a whole list yeah. scissors and a, a hole punch and uh, brass yeah. fasteners and masking tape. What What's a project without masking tape? Uh, and yeah. so, <laughs> so the idea being that you will, uh, if you're, you're interested in this, and this is something the whole family can do. This is This is ancient ancient cultural stuff it's tons of fun and people of all ages can enjoy it it's a crowd pleaser jasmine that's right yes and all of the supplies are things that are easily found around the house or at the dollar store or at the local craft store and what's really special is we've got a family day class on the holiday Monday. Okay. Um, all of the classes run from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. And our community class, which is on February the 21st, that one we're really excited about because it'll be offered in English and Mandarin. Okay. So we'll have a Mandarin interpreter there. So um, especially, you know, in intergenerational families where maybe the grandparents might speak Mandarin, but the kids speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of a way to bridge the language gap. Interesting. And I'll bet you the grandparents have got some pretty nifty skills when it comes to sharing them with a couple of generations uh, beneath them in terms of learning the magic of shadow yeah. puppetry. Yes, exactly. So how popular is this? What's the feedback been like since you announced this program, Jasmine? Yeah, there's been a lot of excitement that's been building around it. Um, This is also the first year that we've done a partnership with the Children's Arts Festival in Richmond. Mm -hmm. So they have also been offering uh, virtual classes. Theirs are pre-recorded, whereas ours is live, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think it was important for us that, you know, we wanted to have that interactive element that, you know, Annie gets to talk to the students, they get to ask her questions. Um, You know, I know during this time, uh, online YouTube art classes have been really popular. You bet they have. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. But we wanted to take it a step farther where people could actually talk to Annie and, you know, really draw on her knowledge. Interesting stuff. So I guess then from I'm looking at it now from the presentation point of view, from Annie's perspective, um, you you don't want to overwhelm her with uh, too many questions and too many people. So is there a limit on how many people can participate in any given workshop at any one time? Yes. So we've intentionally kept the capacity quite small so that people get to have that focused time, that she gets to see everyone. Perfect. So each workshop is a maximum of 15 households. Okay. But within your household, if you've got siblings, they're totally welcome to participate. If you've got cousins who are, you know, in your bubble, then um, it's really by household. So 15 households total. How do people go about signing up? This is a key stuff here and we're just a few days away so if we're going to be interested we better get moving yes absolutely so head over to gatewaytheater.com and you'll see in upcoming events that's where you'll find the virtual chinese shadow puppetry workshops and just hit register and it's super easy all right jasmine we wish you considerable success with this and a happy new year a few days in advance Uh, thanks for being available to us it's good to talk to you and the folks at gateway theater again Thank you very much. So lovely to be back. Jasmine Chen is the artistic and community producer with Richmond's Gateway Theater. And there you go. There's a fun family thing to do for the Year of the Ox, which arrives this coming Friday. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.